The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Strangers in the world, let's pray. Almighty God, as I share this word that you've put on my heart, quicken it. Quicken it according to your spirit. Lord, we've come to this place because of you, Jesus. And we've come to this place for you to do a work in our hearts, to accomplish the work of heaven tonight in this house. I ask, Lord, accomplish that work. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. There is a sanctifying work that God wants to do in your heart. When we look in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11, we find a statement that we need to understand. It's deep. It cuts right across. This is 1 Samuel, the second chapter, verse 11. I'm waiting for a moment because I want you to look at it. I'm sorry, 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11. I want you to look at this with your own eyes. If it's not underlined in red, you need to do so. 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. In other words, he's saying there are sinful desires that are common to all men and women. None of us are accepted from this. And as these sinful desires come against us, they're warring against us. Sin is not passive. Sin is active. Sin does not lay around waiting for you to beckon it to come to you. Sin comes and crouches at your door and says, I will have you. You belong to me. And when we give in to these sinful desires, we are separated from the heart of God. I mean, this is a war. There is a battle. There will be winners and losers. And in this battle, Satan wants your soul. And he will do whatever he has to do to capture your soul. And he does that by sending sinful desires to your heart. He knows exactly where the weak places are in your mind and in your spirit and in your emotions. And he sends those sinful desires, and they war against you. Sometimes, I have to tell you, I am so exhausted that I think I'm going to die. And I, I say to my sweetheart, 
honey, what have we been doing that we're so exhausted? Well, it's very plain. We've been making war. We've been going to the radio station and we've been warring against the sinful desires of men and women. And it's exhausting to go to war. You swing the sword until your hand can't release it. You swing the sword and you cut away at those sinful desires. Every man and every woman you, you meet, you have to be confronting those sinful desires. And you know what I want to do? I want to come up and say, hey, how are you doing? Everything's great. We're friends. We're buddies. Everybody loves everybody. Instead, I have to come up and say, what known sin are you living in? Are you playing with the music of the world? Are you playing? Today, we walk into the radio station. Everybody's talking about Super Bowl. Immediately, I go to war. I mean, there's no place I can go where I don't have to go to war because I live in a war zone. I don't get to step off stage because Satan comes in the backstage door. I don't even need to to consider whether he'll be there or not. I know he'll be there. The moment that guard is let down and I begin to say, hey, this is a... This is a nice place to live. This is a pleasant. You know, I think I could stay here a while. And I forget that I'm an alien and a stranger in this world. The moment that guard is let down, those things of wickedness will come sweeping in on my heart and on my soul and on the heart of my brother and sister. And then they're in confusion. Did you know confusion is always the first thing Satan brings so that we don't have to deal with the sin. Somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor, I'm so confused. I say back to them, what sin are you hiding in? What sin do you not want to deal with? Confusion is a cover for sin. The sin of unbelief. The sin of hard-heartedness. The sin of lust. There is a sin that that confusion is... And you know what? As soon as that question is asked... They know what sin they're dealing with. And it's strange how confusion just melts away. And they say, oh, I know what's wrong. Of course you know what's wrong. It's been warring against your soul. And it's been winning. And Satan loves to use confusion to slip the knife into your ribs. He loves to do it that way. Confusion is the devil's anesthesia. Could I say that again? Confusion is the devil's anesthesia. So I'm confused. He's got a blindfold on me. I can't see what's going on. And he gets in close and he puts that javelin right into my heart. And then I'm saying, what happened? I was just confused. I'm a victim. No, you're a foolish warrior who got the knife put in you. And you're bleeding. And you're giving way to the sin. You got too close to the devil. I want to tell you a story tonight. It's one of the most frightening stories in Scripture. 
And you know why these stories are given to us? For warnings and admonitions, so that we will know the ways of Satan and not be taken off guard. So we have the story of, of King Saul. King Saul does not establish a capital in Israel. Instead, he keeps going home to his daddy's farm, and he operates out of the farm. He's a warrior king. Everywhere he goes, he defeats the enemy, but he defeats the enemy in his flesh and his military strategy. The power of God no longer falls on him. He is simply now doing the work of God by sheer strength, energy, and cunning of the flesh. And he's very successful. He knows how to schmooze with the right people to convince them to go his way. He knows how to give the financial rewards to the right people so they will approve of him and join him because there's more wealth from the booty that's coming. He knows that it's a game. Being king for him is a business. He's a politician. Compromise is the name of the game. And so in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, we find the prophet coming to Saul. And any time the man of God comes to a politician, look out, there's trouble. He says, verse 1, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. In other words, Mr. Hotshot Warrior, listen up. God wants to talk to you. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Now, what the Lord God of heaven is literally saying here is harem these people. Harem these people. That's a Hebrew word. We get the word harem from this word. He's saying, the Lord God of heaven is saying, I claim all of the Amalekites for my harem. They belong to me. I'm exercising my authority over them, and I don't want you to touch one thing that belongs to them because everything that they have is harem. It belongs to me. And I'm saying, utterly destroy them. Now you recognize in Romans 12, he's also hareming us. He's saying, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Climb on that altar of burnt offering. Romans 6, you die. Your life is haremed. It belongs totally and completely to God. And so any area of your life where you want to claim a portion of your life for yourself, you are now walking in the shoes of King Saul. Now watch. Saul summons the men. 
He musters them, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. Saul goes to the city of Amlek, and there he sets an ambush in the ravine. He attacks the Amlekites. He scatters them. Verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amlekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs. Now, he's not sparing Agag out of some sense of love. His purpose is to cut off Agag's thumbs and his toes and make him scramble for food under his table. That was the custom of that day. What would that do? That would say Saul is a great man because Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is the dog under his table. And so it would be a point of pride. He let the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, he saved. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now comes the word of the living God to Samuel. Verse 11, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled. He cried out to the Lord all that night. Now we're seeing a contrast here. God sends Saul to do a work of hareeming, of claiming for God a whole people. This is God's judgment upon them. They have filled up their cup of iniquity and wickedness, and God is using his people once more to bring judgment upon them. But Saul is unwilling to execute judgment. Instead, he reserves the best for himself. So you have on one side a righteous prophet who now falls on his face and spends all night grieving over the sin of Saul. Samuel spends all night grieving, weeping before God. What's Saul doing in the meantime? He's feasting and partying and building a monument to his own glory. He's saying, look at the great battle I've won, and look at all the booty we've taken. This has been an awesome battle. So many times when we misunderstand and forget that we're aliens and strangers in the earth, we're ready to go party, and we don't spend time on our face before God. Now, I'm going to be very straight with you. If you have not spent that time on your face before God, you're not after the heart of Samuel. You're after the heart of Saul. And you're probably dealing with God's judgment coming very soon upon your life. You're right at the door if the judgment has not already begun to fall. God will not allow God will not allow 
his people to always rebel against him. There will come a time when he says, enough. And his mercy will be taxed. His justice will swing into action. And his judgments will fall. Now that's why at the National Prayer Chapel, we've positioned ourselves between the city of Washington, D.C. and the throne of God. And we are beseeching God to send judgment, but unto repentance and not damnation. Rightly, he should send destruction on the city of Washington. We have positioned ourselves in a place to plead for his mercy because we know God. We know he's long-suffering. We know he's merciful. We know he's compassionate. We know that Moses had the ability to go before God and lay on his face and cause God to relent and use judgment unto repentance. We're trusting that God does not change. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that if a people will come and intercede for the city, that he will move with judgment unto repentance. Now let me unfold this ugly, ugly truth for you. After that all-night prayer time, early in the morning, Samuel got up from the floor. And in verse 12, he went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and there he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. It's almost like a parent coming home to a naughty child. And the parent walks in the door and says, how did it go? Oh, daddy, I did the dishes. I did everything you asked me to do, daddy. Everything is wonderful. Everything is fine. And nothing is fine. They broke the dishes. They did all kinds of things that they weren't supposed to do. But they don't want the punishment they don't want a belt. So they're dancing and saying, oh, everything's wonderful. And then you find out it's not true. Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Hey, everything we did, we did so we could come and worship the Lord God of heaven. I mean, what's wrong with worshiping God? And so I, I disobey the Lord. I walk in worldliness. And I say I'm walking in this worldliness because I want to serve the Lord. And so today, there was a report out in the British press where the British press was talking about the American evangelical church. And they were quoting pastors of the Saddleback Community Church and of other churches across America. And they were saying, 
we are doing the work of God. We just don't mention sin. We're doing the work of God, but, but we don't use any of that fire and brimstone stuff. We want people to come and feel comfortable in the church. We want people to be able to come and relax, have a cup of coffee, bring it into the sanctuary with you, kick back. Use slang from the pulpit. Wear chino pants. Wear a sports shirt. Just come in, relax in the presence of God. He's your best friend. We're doing the work of God. And the British press was saying, well, maybe this is what's going to turn around Christianity in England. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. The spirit of Saul has come into the body of Christ today, and we have said we're going to use the ways of the world to worship the living God of heaven. And so the theology is taught. God is not a God who will bring judgment upon you. When 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers fell and the, and the Pentagon was stricken, pastors all over this city rose up and said, the devil has done this. This was not God. God would not bring judgment upon the American people. We're good people. We're good people. God loves us. He blesses us. That's the devil. Well, the terrifying part is that the scriptures say, when you attribute the work of God to the work of the devil, that's the unpardonable sin. That brings the final judgment. When you don't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit and rebuking for sin, and you call that the work of the devil, you've committed the unpardonable sin. And so now watch. Watch as this unfolds. 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Well, tell me, Saul replied. Saul has absolutely no fear of God. No fear of God. He knows that any word from God is good news. I mean, God gave him signs and wonders. God gave him provisions. God gave him an anointing. God has done everything for Saul. So God is only going to give him good news. So he can sin blatantly against God he can be face-to-face -face with a prophet and say, hey, no problem here. I'm a good man. I've done what I was told. He's lying through his teeth. Now, the message that's going to come to Washington, D.C., from any righteous man or woman, the message that needs to come at the workplace with any righteous man or woman, is this message from Samuel. Stop. Stop. Do you know what you're doing? Do you understand the consequence for what you're doing? Don't play with God. But you know what? We don't want to say stop. We want to say, look, it's obvious that you're messed up. Could we set a counseling appointment? You know, could you come into the office? Could we sit down? We need to do a little psychotherapy here. 
We need to see if we can get you back on the right path. So let's come in and just talk about this a while, and maybe we can clear up the issues. No, Samuel came and said, stop, let me tell you what God has to say to you. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. What? Double talk. Hey, I killed all the Amalekites, but not Agag. Well, isn't Agag an Amalekite? The soldiers not the commander-in-chief. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now let's back up and look at this. According to the new covenant, all of us in this room tonight are kings. We're priests. We represent Jesus Christ. And he has sent us on a mission. And that mission is to totally destroy all of the Amalekites that live in our heart, that live in our family. Look at, and just keep your finger right there in 1 Samuel, look at 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 24. This is 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 24. It's speaking about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So in other words, Jesus died on the cross to break the bondages of sin over your life. And if you come to him and say to him, hey, Jesus, I broke all the bondages of sin by your blood. I'm okay. I'm fat and happy. And at the same time, you're lusting after the things of darkness. You're feeding yourself on darkness. You're walking in the arrogance of flesh. You're gathering for yourself your own kingdom. You're caring about what's best for you and not what's best for Jesus. 
You're looking out for your own interests and not for the interests of Jesus Christ. You're walking in Saul's footsteps. And I'm forced to ask you tonight, what Amalekites still live in your realm? What Amalekites still live in your realm? That you planned on having as playthings that would eat under your table. You've disabled them. Maybe you've cut off their thumbs and chopped off their toes, and, and now they're supposed to eat under your table, and you can play with them anytime you want to. And so you make allowance in your life for certain areas of sin because you don't want to cut that thing off. You don't want to do the final cut off saying goodbye to that thing. You'd rather keep it under your table and be able to play with it. You derive some benefit from it. And the Lord God of heaven is saying, cut it off. Cut it off. Or I'll reject you. Now listen to what Saul says to Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. I have sinned. And your heart now leaps with joy. And you say, here is a sinner coming in repentance to the throne of God. I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Now he's crying crocodile tears. He's on the sawdust trail. He's admitting that he has done wrong. He is saying, you're right. All of your accusations are absolutely true. I am guilty as charged. And then he begins to speak the truth. I was afraid of the people. You see, my sin, God, is my sin is not because I'm that wicked. My sin is because I'm afraid I'm going to make somebody else unhappy. I'm afraid that if I, if I cut that off, God, I have to consider other people, you know. Now, let me speak a truth to your heart. If you decide to follow Jesus and you walk that garden path of Gethsemane, you walk that crushing path of Gethsemane, you're going to make a lot of people angry. You're going to influence their lives. You're going to inconvenience their lives because they're connected to you. You're going to put them out. You're going to cost them money. You're going to cost them time and energy. You are going to inconvenience other people. Because you're part of a family. You're part of a society. And they expect you to operate with them according to their rules. And when you won't do it, when you cut it off, they say, what's wrong with you? Do you understand the hardship you're going to cause our family if you don't come and participate in this deal? Do you understand the, the embarrassment if you will not come and participate in what we have to do together as a family? Well, Saul begins to make this excuse. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. 
Do you realize that if there were any excuse for sin, it would not be sin? If there was any excuse for sin, it would not be sin. If you could justify or explain rebellion against God, it would not be rebellion. Sin stands on its own two feet without any reason or any justification except a wicked and rebellious heart. Now he begins, I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Which of us would not have our hearts touched and say, he's asking me to forgive him. And he's asking me to go back with him and to worship with him. Why? Of course I'll come worship with you. Of course I'll go back with you. But very wise in the ways of sinners and in the ways of God. He says to him in verse 26, I will not go back with you. In other words, Samuel is saying, I'm not going to play your game, Saul. Now, I tell you, right up, there is no more pitiful sight than a rebellious sinner who has pretended to repent and then is rejected. I mean, they cry huge, boiling crocodile tears. They turn into a dragon weeping on the ground. I know none of you have done that. Now listen, he's going to be exposed. This is one of the most ruthless exposures of a human heart in all of Scripture. But Samuel said, I will not go back with you, verse 26. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And Saul replies, I have sinned. Like, please accept my repentance. I have sinned. But now, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. We now have exposed the honest truth of Saul's heart. He was concerned about his own dignity. He was concerned about his own appearance. And if he could improve his position by crying some crocodile tears, he was prepared to do that. He was ready to do whatever it might take to regain his status with a man of God. So if he had to weep crocodile tears, if he had to lower himself and drag through the mud a little bit, he was prepared to do that. But finally, the real truth comes out. 
He's going through all of these posturings of repentance so that he can be honored before the people. So that the people will look at him and say, what a wonderful king we have. What a godly man our king is. Isn't he an awesome king? And he's humble, Kevin. He's humble. No, he's not humble. He's arrogant. He's hard-hearted. He is determined at all costs to preserve the Amalekites in his life. And he's been caught. He's been uncovered. And now his posturing has been uncovered. Now, this word should be terrifying to your soul. For God sees how you come to him. And when you position yourself before the Lord God of heaven and you say, I'm sorry, I've sinned. I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. He knows whether you're doing that to posture so that you can do it again another day. He knows if you're doing it in order to gain his favor so his wrath will be turned aside from you and you can then slip back and play with King Agag under the table. He knows straight up where your heart's at. So where is your heart tonight? You are exposed in your sin. Do you scramble to come up with a justification? Or do you repent and say, I changed that behavior. It's over. I'm going to lay on my face before God until I get a new heart. Or do you say, no, it's not a new heart that I need. It's a marketing campaign I need. It's a little strategy here. You know, I can get a little bit cleaned up, go to church a little, read my Bible a little, pray a little. Now, do a little bit. But in your heart, you know you're going right back to your sin because you love it. And you're trying to figure out, how can I keep God happy and off my back and still go do what I want to do? How can I manipulate God into loving me and leaving me alone? You can't. Jonathan Edwards in The Sinners of an Hangry God said very plainly, your foot shall slip and soon you shall be cast down into hell. You can't play games with God. He sees, he knows, he understands. He reads the inner motives of the heart. And some of you have thought you were looking fine on the outside and you were getting away with what you wanted to do, but you've not been getting away with it at all. God's been seeing it. He's been recording it. And your sin will find you out. Verse 31. So Samuel went back with Saul. And Saul worshipped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came in confidently thinking surely the bitterness of death is past 
But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the living God of heaven at Gilgal. Now, let's be very clear. We have two different kinds of worship lifted up. We have the worship of King Saul that is made up of people pleasing. We have the worship of King Saul that is focused on how can I use worship to accomplish my own goals? How can I use worship to satisfy some hungry desire in my heart? How can I come and consume the wonderful things of God to give me strength so I can go back out and play with my Amalekite buddies? That's the worship of King Saul. You have, on the other hand, the worship of Samuel. Samuel's worship is not seen in the public expression of dancing and shouting. Samuel's worship is taking Agag and just flat out putting him to the sword. The worship that God is looking for in my life and yours is the willingness to stop all the posturing and just take the Amalekites out and put them to death. Now that's straight up, isn't it? What kind of worshiper are you? Have you been over here dancing with Saul? Figuring out how you could accomplish what you desired to accomplish? Get a little strategy for success? Get a little inspiration? because you know you're going to go back out and play with the Amalekites in your life? Or have you come over here with Samuel? And you just flat out said, bring me these Amalekites. They're, they're finished in my life. I'm not going to walk this way anymore. I'm not going to play games with God. It's over. It's finished. It's done. There is no bondage of sin that cannot be broken by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there's a bondage of sin in your life and you are saying, well, you know, I just have to wait for God to come and do this, then you are worshiping God like Saul. You're playing games. If on the other hand, you're like Samuel, you'll see this deal, you'll see this bondage, and you'll fall on your face, and you'll stay on your face before God until the victory is won by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not you who will win the victory. It is Jesus who will win the victory, but he will win the victory as you come into his presence, and you lay on your face, and you wait for the victory to come, and you cry aloud, and you stand by faith, and you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, and that thing is broken, and you're delivered, and you walk free. So are you worshiping tonight like Saul, making excuses for your sin, posturing and ducking and jiving? Or are you worshiping like Samuel? Flat up, take it out, kill it, it's done. I'm finished. I choose the living God of heaven. Samuel left for Ramah. 
But Saul went up to his home in Gilbreth of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Across this great city of Washington, D.C., there are many pastors and many Christians who are worshiping in the human wisdom of Saul. And they don't believe that God will bring judgment upon them. They believe it's okay to have their Amalekite buddies playing under their tables. They believe that they can just relax and enjoy the good life. They don't need any nights of weeping. They don't need to press in and read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. All they need are their videos and their television and their sports, their NASCAR. All they need are all the fun things. They need their alcohol and they need their drugs. They need all the stuff they play with. They need their sex. They need their violence. And all of this is brought into the body of Christ and it's smoothed over and you sit in the sanctuary and you look around and there's absolutely no presence of God in that house. Oh, but there's fine sounding music. There's a beautiful show going on. The lights are on. The spotlights are going. The smooth tongued people are doing their number. God's judgment is about to fall on the house of Saul. And woe be unto the Christian who is in that house because its fall will be complete. Now, one of the struggles that I have as your pastor is how to speak a word that does not compromise because all of my training has been in the art of compromise. All of my training has been in the art of motivation and pleasing in positive thinking. But I come to you tonight and I try to just remove all that varnish and say to you, your soul is on the line. If you worship in the way of Saul, you will die. You will be separated from the presence of God. You will walk in confusion and misery. You will have no victory over sin. But if you walk in the way of Samuel, you will be blessed by Almighty God. He will lift you up. You will wake up in the morning and you will be clean before God. There will be nothing between your heart and the heart of the Lord God of heaven. And joy will rise up in your spirit and you will say, I am clean by the blood of Jesus. I have been washed by the blood. And you'll go out into your day's labor with joy on your face. You'll go out there speaking an honest word of love and comfort and confrontation wherever you go. There will be no compromise. There will be no game playing because the Amalekites don't live under your table anymore. They're dead. You've had the victory. Oh, I'm sick of, of people never gaining the victory in Jesus. He didn't come and die for us to be beat up every day by the devil. He died so we could walk in victory, in authority, in power. 
How do you worship tonight? Do you worship in the way of Saul? Or do you worship in the way of Samuel? Mighty God. Mighty God of heaven, King of kings and Lord of lords, uncover the secrets of every man's heart. Lord, begin with me. Uncover, Lord God, expose. Let there be no hiddenness, Lord God. Examine the heart and the spirit. And Lord, for those tonight who choose to worship in the way of Samuel, Lord, enrich them with your presence. Pour into them, strengthen them, encourage them, Lord God. Bind up their wounds. Fill them with your presence. Give them victory, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Oh, His glory.